Let's pray. Heavenly Father, save us by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the principles of preaching is to always preach from your scars and not your wounds. When your wounds are fresh, you're still hurting, angry, confused, lost, trying to answer questions and get explanations that aren't going to make a difference, but you are really desperately still trying to find those things, hoping that maybe you could point a finger or assign blame, even though that's not going to make a difference either. While you wait for the wound to scab over, you have time to reflect, to study, to think, to pray, and that gives you perspective. One of the worst adages in the world is, time heals all wounds. Oh, wouldn't that be great? I mean, if we could simply say, Alexa, set a timer for three months. And when it went off, we knew that we would be completely and totally healed, ready to go back to our life and get on with everything. It's not the time that heals. It's what can and hopefully takes place in that time that heals. That's why some people, by the way, no matter how long they wait, are still not healed because for all sorts of different reasons. They haven't prayed or thought or studied or reflected. Rather, they just set a timer and hoped that everything would just go away. The last month, my sermons have been barely adequate. That is not an excuse. It's a confession. Between my dad's death and additional workload that involved another of other individuals going to be with Jesus, uh, diagnoses, friends, challenges, let's just say, I basically fell at the foot of the cross and I waited for Jesus to pick me up and give me the strength to get back to work, just like he did old Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Oh, I might have been missing the cave and the ravens and the stream, but it was otherwise pretty much the same. So even though a preacher should never preach from wounds and should always wait until it scabs over, this is one wound that has opened up over a hundred times as family and church members and friends have died. Some with me holding their hands as they took their last breath and others that I could not be there. And so all they had were my prayers. Each time the scab was ripped off, I learned something and I was drawn closer to the heart of God. I asked new questions. I was forced to think and pray and, and most of the time just sit in silence while I waited for God to move. And so I'm going to violate my rule because I think that there's no better lesson for Reformation Sunday than to preach from an open wound. 1 Corinthians 15 in the King James Version says, Where, O death, is your sting? And while I usually love a good thee, thou, thine, and thy, in this case I disagree with old King James because I know exactly where the sting of death is. It's in my heart. It's in my soul. It's in my life, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. I'm pretty sure all of you know where that sting of death is as well. But fortunately, that's not the whole verse. Paul goes on to say, well, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Now we're cooking with gas, except there's a bunch of states that are trying to ban gas stoves, so maybe it'd be better if we would just say we're cooking with Kiave wood. Death does not have power over us. It doesn't have power over our friends or loved ones if we are in Christ. That's why Paul finishes this chapter with the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how did God give us victory? Well, through the cross and the empty grave. The, the first time that death couldn't hold on to someone. And thanks to Jesus, it's not the last time either. You know, I love to point out that we are a forgetful people, which is why God has 
has to remind us over and over again that we have a Savior, that we are unique and unreproducible, that we are loved and forgiven, and that there is a place in heaven with our name on it that's just waiting for us. And that place, by the way, has been ready even before the foundations of the earth were laid. There are a lot of other things God needs to remind us of, and that's why we have one another. And the verse from Ephesians 4, for us to speak the truth to one another in love, well, that's always my prayer for us as a community. These past few months, the hymns, communion, baptism started pushing the reset button on my soul. None of those would have mattered if it hadn't been for you, because theology does not take place in a void. It can't take place in a vacuum. It always takes place in a community, even an imperfect one like ours. Now, as imperfect as we are, God chooses to make himself known through us and to us through one another, which can be very, very dangerous if any of us, especially a leader, ignores God and does their own thing in their own way, which is why the Reformation was needed and why we need to continue to reform. You see, the mystery of what happens here on Sunday mornings is the Word and Spirit work through not just the Scripture readings or the sermons, but also the smiles and handshakes and hugs and tears and laughter. Well, it's always amazing. God turns water into a holy instrument of love and wine and wafers into a meal that empties us of our sin and fills us up with His righteousness. Music both soothes the soul and inspires the heart and gets our toes to tap on occasionally. And there is coffee, which many Lutherans consider to be the fourth sacrament, unless they, of course, follow Martin Luther and prefer beer, just not at 8.15 a.m. I find comfort and strength in the traditions of faith, even if sometimes they are so dusty that you know, they make us cough when we try to use them. Or the words sound strange and awkward because they are from very different times. Or the stories are hard to wrap our minds around because, let's face it, some of them just seem so impossible. And yet it is that very word impossible that pushes us and pulls us through our hurts and pains, our losses and lostness, because Jesus said, with God, nothing is impossible. This congregation is part of a holy and invisible church that stretches around the world and throughout all time. We are crucified and risen. We're also the body of Christ. We're the hands and feet and heart and voice of Jesus. Now, we are still imperfect, sinful, lost, but that is who and what God has chosen to work with and work through. He is far more interested in grace than perfection. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, you know what? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Then he said, go and learn what this means. And that's a lesson that we need to learn over and over. So if you don't know your Reformation history, it's okay. Um, here's a quick summary, though. Around the 1400s, the church got forgetful, as it always does, and this time its forgetfulness messed with the very fabric of salvation. They were teaching you were saved by the things you did, not the things that Jesus did. Forgiveness, along with church leadership positions, were sold, and the people of God had hope and grace ripped from their hearts and souls. Martin Luther was a law student that was tormented to the point that he starved himself and literally beat himself uh, trying to become holy enough that God would love him. Now, he was riding home during a thunderstorm one time, and lightning stuck, struck so close that he was literally scared to death, and he cried out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint, if you'll let me live, I'll give up being a lawyer, and I'll become a priest instead. So he left law school, became a priest. Now, the seminary did nothing to calm his anxious soul. But as he read the Bible, he discovered the church wasn't following the Bible. 
The church said to do things to make up for your sin. The Bible said to confess it to God and let him forgive you. There came a moment where he could no longer follow the church's teachings, and he challenged the church to explain itself. He wrote 95 theses and their statements to debate. The church took great offense, labeled him a heretic, and put a bounty on his head. Now, all the other priests and others who had tried to reform the church before him had been killed. But Luther escaped his fate for two very specific reasons. First, he had a powerful friend and a German prince who hid him in a castle. And second, Gutenberg had invented a printing press, and Luther's works were quickly spread to all of Europe, which meant that others caught on, and the Reformation got born before the church had a chance to squash it. Now, Luther was a cranky, opinionated, and at times very crude individual. Sarcasm was his spiritual gift, and he occasionally went off on non-theological tangents that were very, very offensive which is why even he said the church should not be named after him. We do not worship Luther, nor do we agree with everything he wrote. But there are parts that change the world and the church and us, and for that we're grateful. Luther never intended to start a new church. He just wanted to reform the old one, but it was not to be. And so after a diet of worms and a confession at Augsburg, well, the new church got birthed. Just an FYI, we are not Protestants. Although, since they don't have a Lutheran category on those pesky surveys or information sheets, uh, well, unless you got a blank to fill it in, you got to choose Protestant. That's about as close as you're going to get. But you see, we're not protesting anymore. We became our own church, not to the exclusion of other churches, but prayerfully beside them as we all seek out God's word and will and specifically his truth. And if there is anything that the Reformation gave us, it is the freedom to ask questions about the Bible, about history, about the church, about God, about our faith, and even about our doubts. Lutheran Christians have a 500-plus year history of asking, so what does this mean? And if you've ever gone through the catechism, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, The downside of this freedom is that people think that they can twist and turn the Bible to say whatever they want. In other words, make it comfortable to them, which is just as bad as the church twisting and turning the Bible to say whatever it wants, which is why the Reformation, not just the one that took place in 1517, but all the Reformations that have all taken place in history cannot end until Jesus shows up and takes us home to heaven. We must not only question the church, but also ourselves. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Well, thy word, Father, it's truth. And so we must always strive to be in his truth, not ours or anyone else's, just God's. Here is where my month-long wandering and Reformation Sunday collide. I want you to imagine living 500 years ago. And when you came to church, the liturgy was in Latin. And chances are, you didn't speak Latin unless you were a priest or a doctor or a lawyer. Most of you wouldn't be able to read it anyway uh, because... You had to trust the priest to read the Bible to you because it was also in Latin and Greek and Hebrew, which meant that if you didn't know what it said and what it was trying to say, if the priest said something that wasn't true, you didn't know the difference. A special guest preacher showed up from time to time, allowing you to cut short your time in purgatory for a very special donation, which, to their credit, by the way, was scaled according to your income. And by the way, if you wanted to help your mom and dad and aunt or best friend who had already died cut time there short in in, in purgatory, you could help them too. What I've never been able to understand is if they would also allow you to pay to extend somebody's time in purgatory if they had made you angry, because that would have been a real fundraiser.
Purgatory, though, isn't in the Bible. It was an invention of the church about 1170 A.D. So 1140 years after Jesus went to heaven, we came up with something new and said, hey, look at how this works. It became a netherworld between heaven and hell where people went to pay for any sins that they hadn't been forgiven before they died. In other words, you still had to work your way into heaven. And here's how the merit system worked. If you committed 1,234,455,989 sins, then you had to have at least 1,234,455,990 good works in order to get into heaven. You had to have more good works than you did sins. Purgatory threw grace and faith out the window and made salvation about people and what they did rather than Jesus and what he did. 300 years later, people like Luther were still struggling with this warped theology, which, by the way, had now taken to the next level in order to pay for buildings and arts and castles and the salaries of church leadership, which were very expensive because they had uh, found a lifestyle which they had become very much accustomed to. In other words, we were right back to what was happening when Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's that whole forgetful people thing. Now, while oversimplifying it, much of the Reformation can be credited to Luther properly translating one single word. You see, in Jerome's Latin translation, the word repent used by Jesus in one of his sermons had been mistranslated as do penance. In other words, do something instead of change your heart. Erasmus had published a Bible with the original Greek on one side and the Latin on the other, so anyone who knew Greek could actually see the mistake. Do you see the difference? Because it's really important. While it may sound easier to just throw a few dollars in the offering plate or do something nice for someone, well, if that's the way you're going to get to heaven, there's always going to be some uncertainty. In other words, did I do enough? Is there anything I forgot about or didn't know about? At almost every funeral I've conducted, the family and friends got up and talked about how good a person the deceased was. And nobody was arguing. They were kind, they were loving, they were faithful. However, when the service was over and they were enjoying refreshments, okay, uh, that's uh, when they started to ask, hey, do you remember when they did this? Or how about the time that they did that? And most of those times, by the way, were not very kind, loving, or faithful. And often not very good, evil. But they were memorable. What Luther sought was to restore grace, God's unconditional love for you and everyone else he'd ever created. You see, God give us grace, and it flows over you at the baptismal water or into you during Holy Communion. It is a promise to always be present in your life, to guide and encourage you, to always take you back when you mess up and when you have nobody else or nowhere else to turn. It is accepting you even in those times that are memorable, but not very kind, good, loving, or faithful. Because it's not about you becoming perfect. It's about you becoming holy. And that's a very different thing. When God the Father sent His Son to suffer and die on the cross, something that no father should ever have to do, it had to be out of love for His Son, but also for the ones He sent His Son to save. See, when you love someone, I mean really love them, you are no longer the center of your own universe. The one you love is. You forget yourself, deny yourself, give of yourself. And while this scientifically and mathematically should mean there's less of you because of all that forgetting and denying and giving, the mystery of love creates actually more of you than was ever thought thought possible so that you could continue to give even more. See, when Jesus died on the cross... 
giving everything he had to save us. It brought about a life and a love that can never be stopped. Not by sin, not by death, not by Satan. Everything we do as believers is about learning to love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the key word there is all. And as we grow deeper and deeper in our love for Jesus, we learn not to be afraid of dying. Not just the dying when we stop breathing and our heart stops, but, but also the dying to all the stuff of this world that tries to hold us here and well, keep us from being embraced by God and His love. Eventually, our baptism becomes more than just some guy in a white dress splashing water on our forehead. But instead, we learn we actually died in that, in that water. And then Jesus raised us up as a new creation to live a forever life with him. To love God is to be saved. And fortunately for us, we don't have to learn to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength before he loves us. Turns out, regardless of which side of the grave we're on, to love God and live for him in heaven well, all of that is a gift, not an achievement. And so when Jesus said, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it, I finally get it. You see, my dad, Ellen, Jim, Jerry, Shanti, Bill, Famico, Kazumi, I know, the list could go on and on. They may have lost their earthly life, but they gained a forever one. And that is exactly what I need to be reminded of as I navigate the hungering dark and Jesus constantly leads me back into the light of his love. And it's what you need when you're going through that hungering dark and when you need to be guided by Jesus back into his love and the life he set apart for you. It's also the best reason I can think of to celebrate Reformation Sunday. For we are saved not by being good or trying to be good or the money we put into the offering plate or trying to follow all the rules. We are saved by grace, through faith, purely and simply. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.